I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Come correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Dan Ozzie. Dan is the author of two spectacular books, which I have not read, but I would like to learn about because, because of the extraordinary premises of these books, and I believe that we may have a very interesting discussion about them. Uh, one of the books is called Tranny, which was written with Against Me's Laura Jane Grace, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout, which was on Billboard's list of 100 Greatest Music Books of All Time, and his most recent book, Sellout, The Major Label Feeding Frenzy That Swept Punk emo and hardcore 1994 to 2007 so anyway dan welcome how's it going thank you so much for having me yeah okay. and this this one you're in this book your name you make an appearance in this great book, so. i can't i can't wait to, i can't wait to hear how how i'm disparaged in it or, or not but to, <laughs> like um, you know who's the meanest guy in rock and roll <laughs> um so first of all what was the impetus to write such a book because i think it's a very important scab to pick and what was the impetus for writing this book I love that description, the scab to pick. I feel like we'd healed up and now I've reopened it. But it was like a very raw topic when I was growing up. I grew up in this era of music where I discovered punky bands of the 90s, Green Day, and then the stuff that was on Epitaph and Fat. And from then until I, you know, through my teenage years, it was just uh, you just hear about bands that you loved and they were on uh, an indie label. But then all of a sudden they went to a big label and and everybody got so mad about it, you know, and it was it was a big deal. And it, it sounds probably ludicrous to a young person today who is just like, you mean they're not on Spotify? You know? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. labels were a big deal. And it, it was there were allegiances that you had. And for me, I, the band that was I was most personally connected to was against me at that time. And. You know, I was I felt burned because, you know, they preached this really DIY ethic where, you know, we don't need stadiums. We just need a place to play and a, a place to rest. And it was like this really galvanizing message. And then uh, they even made a documentary about how they would never go to a major label. Look at how silly these guys are trying to court us. And then within six months, they did go to a major label. And it wasn't even so much. I think that they were getting paid. It was on a personal level. It was like, okay, I used to see this band at a 200 cap VFW hall and their records were 10 bucks because they were on no idea records. And now they're playing underneath the Foo Fighters. And I, if I want to go see them, I have to go to an arena to go see the Foo Fighters. And it's $70 plus Ticketmaster fees and their records are on Sire. So now those are 20 bucks. And I can't, right. I just, you sometimes just feel like you get pushed out of this thing that you yeah. in a way help build you know yes, it almost feels yes. like a, a band is like a, a stock and yeah. you're like <laughs> investing yes, and then yeah. when the when the company does something you don't like you're like why wasn't i consulted i'm on the board of this <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah it was like uh, you felt personally burned and it was such a heated time in music and in the music industry and i just felt like it hadn't really been documented in a in a proper way yet so yeah yeah i think that i think you're absolutely right. so the so the bands that some of the bands that you talk about in this are green day blink 182 at the drive-in the donnas who i've had a lot of experience with distillers my chem rise against and against me so how did there's all bands that began sort of in an indie 
do-it-yourself world and all bands which matriculated into a major label. So was there a common thread in these bands' stories? Yeah, I mean, like every band, like you said, is, uh, you know, to, to be a qualifier, you have to have had a major label record, right? Mm-hmm. Go from an indie to a major. Um, Green Day and Against Me, the Alpha and the Omega, those were easy <laughs> because like Green Day really kicked this door open in 1994 with Dookie. And Against Me, I think, kind of shut the door after New Wave. I don't think labels, mm-hmm. you know, the, the music industry changed and I don't think labels were interested in that kind of music anymore. But the the ones in between, you know, I had to make some Sophie's choices. But yep. to me, I was just very surprised at how interconnected a lot of this stuff was and so i'm sure people are going to pick it up and be like i just want to read the at the drive-in chapter and great you can do that but to me they're all really connected and i see it as one story and i guess i kind of picked the bands that i thought progressed this decade of commercial interest in in punk ish music Uh because you know early on it was it was pop punk eh, with green day and then that morphed into blink 182 it was even ska for a little bit you know with like real big fish less than jake had capital records but then after that well dried up it morphed into like this post-hardcore emo sound with thursday yes yes my chemical romance and stuff so um i tried to just map out the direction that it, this weird uh, commercial interest in, in punk music took over this time. Yeah, so w- within the bands themselves, so so each of these bands began sort of underground, and then each of them bubbled to this kind of major label surface. Was there any continuity in sort of the band's ethos or the explanation for making this decision, which clearly in a lot of their minds was going to affect their original fan base? Well, it's funny because I think once everybody saw what happened to Dookie. Yes. People dug in. And it, it's funny too, because like, uh, pe- you know, people ask me, why was everybody so angry about it? And it's like, well, it, you know, for going all the way back to the 70s, Sex Pistols, Ramones, Clash, all on major labels, yes. right? Wasn't really as big of a deal because there wasn't this DIY network. Yes. And then after commercial interests, you know, they kind of like, were like, okay, punk's over. Let's move on to new wave or... Yeah. R&B, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so, but punk kept going. And so this like DIY network established with, you know, Black Flag and Fugazi, sure. there was yep. uh, indie promoters, indie distributors, indie fanzines. And so this like network built over a decade, it was very hard earned. It was a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And then when Green Day hit, people tried to buy that. You know, yes, and so people yes. got very protective of it. And so for some people, it really mattered. Like in that Berkeley scene with Green Day and Jawbreaker, it really mattered. But Blink-182 were from like San Diego. And Blink-182, you know, when I talked to Mark Hoppus for the book, he was like, I just wanted to be on the radio. Like I didn't care. I didn't, as long as I was making the albums that I wanted, like how is that selling out? You know, I just wanted people to like my band. And so it affected people differently for different reasons. And sometimes it's like a socioeconomic reason. Like Green Day was from a really shithole place in Rodeo and they didn't have money, you know, like Mm -hmm, it was like a refinery town. And so I'm sure like a major label check meant more to them than maybe like a Blink-182 or something like that. Um, So just it's it's funny because it affected everybody differently and it affected the fan bases differently. Like Rise Against was a very interesting case because they're a punk band you would have you would think that their fans would have gotten quite mad at them but everybody they were such underdogs that everybody was kind of like 
good for them. (laughs) Uh, That's cool. Good for them. I hope, I hope they make it. I found a, 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 like a fanzine review that said like, you know, even if it doesn't work out, I hope they have a long career. And like, when does a fanzine ever write that? that. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, it's just so funny how it affected different bands differently for sure. Yeah, that's funny. Now I, the first time the genesis of sort of the hearing about selling out in the music industry happened in the sort of mid-80s, there was, it might have been 87, there was a band named Maggie's Dream, which you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. They were a band that had a little bit of a, like a buzz, and they were a, sort of a one-part jam band, one-part Jane's Addiction, very handsome sort of multi-ethnic band. No one heard of this band until they did a Budweiser commercial. Now, this was a band that did not have indie credit, but didn't have it. They just were handsome dudes who made a record that was iffy, but they did a but and they were dragged across <laughs> the coals by every like everyone t- had something to say about it. You know, I, I Elton John or like everybody was like talking about like what an incredible sellout movement. You know, cut to a few years later, as Napster begins sort of devouring some of the in- income streams where everyone's rushing to do a Jaguar commercial. But anyway, it was it was an interesting like that was like the first time where it entered my mind, like they, like this band was just pummeled for something that later on people stood in line for. You know what's so funny? Just thinking about how much it's changed now because I think now there's so much less money to go around that people, uh, fans, begrudge their favorite bands a little bit less and cut them a little bit more grace. I was was thinking about this, um, these friends, this band that I knew um, a couple years ago, they got offered like maybe Vans or Doc Martens, like one of the yes, cool shoe yes, companies, yes, you know, yes, uh, yes. they were like, Hey, we'll give you five grand so, or so to go play two shows in South Africa and we'll play for your way. All you really have to do is like, you know, record a video and we'll put Doc Martens on the flyer. And they were just like, great. Didn't even think twice about it because they get to go to South Africa and they right, probably right. would not get to do that otherwise. Yeah. And so they went and like, but, and it was all fine and everything, but like, in 1995, oh. if you had Doc Martens on a, fl- a punk oh. flyer, you would have oh. just gotten run out of town. The Are end, you kidding? The end. The end. <laughs> you the can't end. Do yeah. That. Yeah. It's very, very different markets. I mean, the way that I've looked at it is that, and I think that's something that that now people don't think about as much. But I always looked at it like this: is you have to decide each artist, from the bass player to the band to whatever, has to decide what is and what is not for sale. Mm-hmm. Right. That to me has been like, that's the, that's the barometer. And it's interesting hearing your perspective of part of like, sort of the, and I think that you, I think that you stated very clearly that there was a community that created itself and that you felt ownership in that then when those bands started defying or sort of in the name of what seemed like corporate greed or something like that, sort of defying the ethos that had been created there, that felt, it felt like a betrayal. And, um, and, and it's, it's funny too, because it, it, what you're talking about makes me think of like when you're talking about bands that have like radical politics, rage, anti-flag, uh, rise against all three bands that had sort of this like radical leftist message that they wanted to get out. And there is a, a, a moment and I'm sure you probably had it. You tell me, but where, where you think like, okay, well we can be this like independent band for a long time and just preach to the choir. We can go to our punk shows and we can talk about, you know, fuck the Iraq war and everybody's on board. But, you know, rise against, I know, like Tim said, 
we wanted to get that message out there. And when we got more people heard Swing Life Away on the radio, and then we would go to uh, Omaha where there was, uh, you know, support the troops bumper stickers, and we say, fuck George Bush, you don't get the same reaction as you do at like uh, a small punk show. You're all of a sudden, you're going to where the fire is. You're putting yes. water where the fire is. So I, I think for, for bands like that, for you, for Anti-Flag, for Rise, you have to sort of reconcile like, well, okay, is it worth us taking flack and doing this corporate deal, but we can reach X amount more of people. We can have like these like radical awakenings in people like that. That to me, I think is what really prompted rise to, to do it because it's just like, you know, they've, pro they've inspired so many punk awakenings, like kids yeah. that never thought about veganism or uh straight edge, like anti-homophobia, you know, like he's, they're planting those, ideas in people's minds and yeah they had to sign on a dotted line to do that but you know that's that's the payoff that you get i'm tom morello and this is maximum firepower my guest today is dan ozzy so let i want to talk a minute about rancid because i got to witness that firsthand the person who signed pearl jam and the person who signed rage against the machine also was going to sign Rancid. Was that Goldstone? Michael Goldstone. Mm -hmm, yeah, Michael Goldstone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Michael Goldstone. But I remember being, I was a huge fan of Rancid. Like, what a what a great band, man. Like, what a and and they were and we would get firsthand from Goldie. Like the daily, they were right at the crossroads of this, where all these all these bands were. And they and they, and the ironic thing that happened was, like he said, if you do decide to sign with my label. I will get a green mohawk on, right, that, right. on that day, right? And so they decided to sign with Michael Goldstone. So he got a green mohawk, and then they changed their minds. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was also um, at the time when Madonna wanted them over Goldstone, yes. and I think she was at Epic where she not she wasn't working there. She like owned it or something, yeah. but she sent uh, nude photos of herself to Rancid as yes. her sort of like yes. bartering chip. I believe to Tim in particular. <laughs> if <laughs> I recall crazy, the, if yeah. I recall the story correctly, yeah. She had some negotiating she she pursued rage against them. And then they about. turned them down, you know? It's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. And then I haven't really talked with those guys since, but I wonder, sort of in retrospect, like they felt very great about that decision then. And I just sort of wonder how because that pressure was, I mean, I felt it. I was never in that world. So I like, but at shows, you know, there were different contingents, you know, that were at the show that would, didn't like the fact that you were in Hit Parader magazine and this one, that one. And I got to tell you, I chafed at the elitism of it because mm. that's the magazine that I read that turned me on to rock and roll. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I can't be in that magazine because because I know that there's another me but this time they're not reading about, you know, Gene Simmons' dating life or Jimmy Page's occult practices. They're reading about the Zapatistas. Right. And they're reading yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. reading about, you know, whatever so whatever anti-fascist thing we're into at that particular time. And to somehow think that those kids aren't worth reaching, that always felt weird to me. And I, I you made a great case at the beginning of this for sort of like the community that was built and how it did feel offensive. And so it's interesting, like it was a tricky time. It was. And you know what, too? Another thing that we haven't even talked about, like sometimes, yes, the criticism was if you were going to do a commercial, if you were going to be in a magazine that they didn't, whatever. But uh, even too the 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 production was something that punks sure. pushed back on. Like, sure. Dear You, Jawbreaker's Dear You, 
you know, even I think people even before they heard it at the time were like, <laughs> this is too slick. This is too produced. And uh, that record, they should teach in like engineering school, like studio. It's it's yeah. a per like the I, t I interviewed Rob Cavallo for it. And he he produced this record. He produced Green Day's Dookie, another like mm -hmm. impeccably recorded album. He's just a savant. He's just a wizard. He gave this band like a better album than that scene had ever heard. And it was just like, eh. There's too many too many guitar tracks on it. Yeah, too, you yeah. Know? And, and uh, I also interviewed Butch Vig, you know, who obviously like did Nevermind and he did Against Me's New Wave. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he was like, you know, my whole career, they, there has been people who are like, Butch Vig ruined this band. And he's just like, you can't, <laughs> you can't get bogged down in that. So it wasn't even sometimes the politics. It was just like, or maybe people like conflated politics with, you know, how they received the sound, but they were just like, no, I don't like the way this sounds. You right, know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, there was, that. I mean, that punk rock guilt was very much in that, the Lollapalooza wave of bands. You know, as I remember with, I forget which Pearl Jam record they were making, but Brendan O'Brien was producing it. And, you know, and Eddie Vedder was just playing him like Fugazi and Minor Threat Records goes, make it sound like that. <laughs> and, and now I know that Ed loves that music, but I think that there was more going on sort of psychologically and emotionally about sort of where the band's pressure went. He wanted it to, even though they were playing arenas, he wanted it to sound like they were playing basements. That's so, and, yeah, you know, yeah. And Kurt Cobain as well, you know, like um, when they made the, the second record, just like, let's try to make this as non-commercial sounding as possible. I don't know that it's even an artistic choice. There was the guilt was really, really strong. Punk guilt comes up so much in the book and it's just so funny. And it, it's kind of like why I wanted to write the book, why I find this era so fascinating, because um, when you think about like the sort of eras or decades of music, right in the 80s, indie rock, we'll say was true indie. It was like, we're not going to make any money doing this. We're lucky if we can like get enough gas money to get to the next town, play our little punk sweaty shows. And then we go to the, you know, get in the van era of, of punk indie rock. And then, uh, you know, in the in the later 2000s, the indie rock, although that word doesn't apply because it was like bands like The Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's and the White Stripes who didn't care at all about that. They were just like, we want to date models and hang out with celebrities and do cocaine and have fun and play arenas. And it was very unapologetic. But in the middle, there was this really undocumented time where there was just this crazy gray area where it was like 22 year olds who were like, hey, We'll give you a million dollars to make a record, but you might alienate your entire fan base. You know, and it's, <laughs> yes. I just found that so fascinating. Yes. It's, it's just unlike yeah. any other, right? It's just unlike any other era. So that's like why I wanted to document it because people felt so. Just think about like what that's like. It's just like I feel bad that I sold a million records. That's, like, that's correct. You know, that's, like yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's just a very weird phenomenon that probably couldn't exist today. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, I'm glad that, I, I, again, the book is called Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept emo, hardcore, and punk from 94 to 2007. <laughs> so it's t tell me, because, I mean, I got to, I toured with a bunch of these bands. Like I remember um, in 1999, Rage Against the Machine took At the Drive-In out on tour. We each got, we had like, we broke up a tour into, each member of the band had one quarter of the tour to pick some band. I picked Anti-Flag, but Zach's pick was At the Drive-In, a band at the time I had not heard of. And I remember seeing them in these basketball arenas. First of all, I saw them backstage, I'm like, if your band sounds a quarter as good as you guys look, this is going to be something. Like this is really, like, <laughs> yeah. this, like you guys, that's you a know good what to make of them. But that 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 uh, tour is documented in my book, and I 
Zach is given credit for. And I think Cedric told me something like, he's like, you know, I actually didn't know Zach's politics, but I knew that we showed up on the first day and he was wearing a Los, Los Crudos shirt. So I knew he knew what the fuck was up. And, um, but they also noted that as being the most difficult tour that they've ever played. Uh, I think Cedric told me something like, you know, we would go out and the crowd was so aggressive towards us. And like Tom had to come out every night and just be like, okay, guys, be cool. And um, <laughs> he said, but I think Jim told me he was like, it felt like we were fighting the audience every yes. night. You yeah, know, it was, it very much was that it very much but was, was that. it, was it like that just out of curiosity? Was it also like that for you guys? Or was it more like, oh no, these people want to see rage and they don't care about these like crazy haired <laughs> i think it was i think it was a, co a combination the, the part of it is like there's a there was an anticipation there's always been sort of an anticipation for a rage against the machine audience it's yeah. it's the, the opening act is not it's not a covet it's not a covet <laughs> not an spot. easy job it's, it's but, not, yeah, it's, yeah, but, yeah. but they but they had a uniquely kind of unorthodox sound that was not there was no, no like sort of pop song story there was not much i thought they were brilliant just like absolutely brilliant but it's not easy to digest for much of that audience who was really waiting for something else to happen but i remember the first couple shows you know i saw them the, i watched the sound check it, it, like holy shit like that's a yeah. that's something's happening there they didn't get booed off stage but they were unwelcomed you know by the interesting crowd. and on uh, night three i think is when i started saying I'd like you to please give a warm <laughs> response to these very good friends of ours. Be on your best behavior, damn <laughs> it. I'll turn and, this car around. And then I <laughs> and then it did seem to dampen down. Like there was sort of like a oh okay. Cedric said oh. something like uh he told me something like, you know, our our label had the bright idea to hand out like demo like a song or two on a cd of our, our of our album and then oh uh, guess no. what happened in the first song oh, yeah. people were just pelting us yeah. <laughs> it has our like this this bullet is marked for that. <laughs> totally. it's, it's like hey here's your future projectiles yes uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah check it. but anyway anyway but I, a great band in that they and so then a lot of a number of these bands sort of like then went back to indie world right in indie labels i had a lot of friends who were on these indie labels, where the only difference in the way that they're being ripped off between the major label and indie label is that the person ripping them off of the indie label has a cooler haircut. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. I'm going to say Tom Morello told me, yeah. my my close personal friend, Tom Morello told yeah. me. Um, but no, that's funny. And that's actually one of the things that I'm most proud of with the book, because I think that an indie versus major binary is very boring to me. It's not the yeah. book I wanted to write. There's nuance to it. And a lot of people, many people actually told me that they're like, you know, the biggest fallacy is the conventional thinking that the indie label is going to do right by you Absolutely. and the major label is going to fuck you over. Absolutely. You know, and they were like, I'm here to tell you that uh, I, I did a record on a major label and we get royalties for it every six months. And there are indie labels that I'm still trying to track down an honest accounting statement. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes the indie label is not even like a, a malice thing. It's like, oh yeah, some 21 year old just decided to start a business. And then all of a sudden they sell 30,000 records and they don't know how to handle the accounting for it. It's right. not even like a, a deliberately right, malicious right, thing. It's like, right, right. yeah, they don't know what they're doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So for in this day and age, we are, here we are in 2021. You've got a punk rock band that you're just that you're just starting. What if there's any sort of pull quote word of wisdom from sellouts, how would you advise them? I think the thing that will always reign true is 
just be careful with who you work with because, yeah. you know, not everybody is has your best interest at heart. And sometimes something looks really appealing, but the people running it are not what they seem. So I don't know. Like, I, th I feel like when I interviewed Jim from at the drive in, he was like, you know, I wish there were more mentors in the music industry because nobody gives you a roadmap for how to become no. famous and no. you just learn it on the fly. So yeah. if possible, you know, like I know that when young bands come out, because I was a young person once and you just can't be told anything. You're like, yes. nobody yeah. can tell me nothing. I'm my shit is the hottest ever. And I get that mentality. But I think it would behoove you to maybe reach out to somebody that's just even a few years older than you and has been through your, what you're going through before, because like the mistakes have been made every five years in rock that's right, music. That's right. That's right. Talk to somebody who's already made them and maybe you can avoid them, you know? Yeah. There are no new mistakes. There, <laughs> right. are, no, there are no new mistakes yeah, in rock and roll. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much. The, I look forward to the, the book is out everywhere. Sell out the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk emo and hardcore 94 to 2007 with green day blink One A two at the drive-in, the Donna's distillers, my chem rise against against me and others. But thank you very much for, for the insight and for your thoughtful answers to these questions. Oh it's my really, God. Thank you so much. I, this was I, surreal. Thank you for having yeah, me. I yeah, can, I can't. I can't wait to read it. All right. Yeah, right. you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Thanks so much. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again, or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower. <laughs>